Usually you take like a work environment or a project, you apply transparency to it and things are much better. And I've just been convinced that it would lead to more productivity, more trust, more engagement. Just everything is better with transparency. And I share with the team very often, like transparency doesn't mean sharing everything. There is good and bad transparency and good transparency helps answer questions and bad transparency help like raises more questions. You're listening to First Block, a Notion series where founders and executives from the world's leading companies tell us what it was like to navigate the many firsts of their startup journey and what they learned from that experience. I'm Akshay Kothari, Notion's co-founder and COO. Today, our guest is Mathilde Collin, co-founder and CEO of Front. Front is a customer operations platform that enables teams to streamline communication and deliver exceptional service at scale. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So welcome to First Block. Um, excited to chat with you. Let's start from the beginning. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you met your co-founder and what sort of got you going on Front? Yeah, so it's not the typical story where my co-founder and I we're like best friends or brothers or whatever. Like we actually met, I think one month before we started uh, working on Front together. And I graduated in 2012. I really wanted to start a company, but, um, and I was very interested in the world of software just because I cared about changing how people worked. But like, I just didn't have the money to start a company. So I met uh, one of the very few angel investors in France at the time. And I was lucky enough that he decided to fund uh, Front uh, pre-product. And he introduced me to my co-founder. Um, and he had met this guy, Laurent, who is the CTO of the company. Uh, same thing for him. Like he had been working for a few years, wanted to start something new. Um, and we met and we're like, okay, well, how are we going to figure out if this is going to work? And so we just you know, went out for dinner and tried to ask ourselves the, the hardest questions like, what if I want to fire you? What if you want to fire me? What if you know we end up with not the same level of equity? What if you want to sell and blah blah? And we always uh, were on the same page, and so we just like made a leap of faith, started this company. Uh, I was pretty interested in the email space. It was more interested in the like workflow space, and so I, th I think Front, you know, is the baby of like two different ways to approach the same problem, and that was in 2013 when we started. Amazing. Talk about value-added investors, investors helping you find your co-founder. Can you talk about why email for you? Like, what was the... So I joined this company uh, just after I graduated, and um, I realized that the impact of the work environment you're in uh, is pretty substantial. So I was a very happy person at the time, but the, I don't know, the, the environment was pretty toxic and I ended up being so sad as a human being. And then I was like, okay, well, so if, you know, people can have such a big impact on how you feel at work, I want to make sure that I start a company where independently from what I work on, like this is a great place to work. And then if I can combine that with also changing how people work, then like that will be very fulfilling. And I was using email to get work done. Um, and I thought, well, this is very interesting. Like this tool that wasn't even created for 
companies' teams or the way we work is still the main tool that people use to get work done. And so it just felt like if people spend like hours and hours in the app like every day, then we should make that you know ten times better. Then the impact you have on people is pretty substantial. Um, that was a very like technology centric you know way to think about it. Like since then, like that's not how we talk about front. Like this is you know not how we describe the problem we solve. But at the time, it was just like. I'm ambitious, everyone uses email, like I want to solve a problem that I've experienced and I want to create a place where people are happy to come. Front is such a good name. Can you tell a little bit about like how you yeah. got to that name and story behind that? Front is really the front office, like something comes in, then behind the scenes you have all these processes, teams, workflows, but really no one wants to, th to see that, like that's your problem. And what people want to do is like, they send you an email, they send you a chat, they send you a text, they send you a WhatsApp message, and they get a response back and everything. And so that's like, front is the front office. And I think, you know, so, like, related to this, a lot of people ask us like how many times you've pivoted or whatever, like we've never pivoted. I think from the very first moment we started working on front, we thought it would be, we, we knew it would be bigger than email. We actually didn't design the product like, email specific, like we started with email as a unit of work, but then when we wanted to add other channels of communication, it was super easy because it wasn't designed specifically for email. So very early on, we thought like this front office is needed, like the options that you have today are either these email tools that haven't been designed for teams or help the solutions that are so clunky and that really show the process, like your ticket number one, two, three, four, five, reply above this line. Like, I don't care. Like, you know, I'm sending an email and I want an email back and that that's it. And so th that's where it comes from. And I've always been so happy that we picked the name. Yeah, I like it for that reason. I think I, I very much like I joined uh, Notion when we, when we had a very small team of customer service. Um, you know, it's probably like three people then. Yeah. And I very much thought of them. This is before we had sales and marketing. Yeah. And in many ways, they were the front office. Yes. Like, they were not the back office. They were the people who were essentially doing sales and marketing before we had sales and marketing, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so it's, it's a great name. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, this is related to one of the things that I've seen along the years is your support team, customer service team, like you can really think about it in like two different ways. Like one is like, it's a cost. And so all you're trying to do is reduce that cost or, and it's easier said for some industries than others, but um, if, you deliver an outstanding experience, then you can truly transform this into such valuable input for your product team. And also like the link between how you support your customers and then how you sell to your customers, like the limit is very blurry. And so using service as a differentiator has turned out to be a great sales tactic. Like I, I know you uh, had Parker from Rippling here and one of the things they did, which we also did a few weeks ago, is publishing our support metrics. And um, if you ask him why he did it, he said, like, I mean, we did it and then we got so many more people to buy the product because they actually genuinely care about making sure that we uh, deliver a great level of service. And that's also my belief that, you know, service teams are these incredibly, like, can be these incredibly powerful teams within our, an organization. And if we can empower them, then I'm so happy. It's like early at Notion, I read uh, Danny Meyer's Setting the Table book, and it really sort of transformed the way I think about it. Because yeah. I think you stop thinking about it 
as a way to like deflect tickets and yes. more about like, I want to talk to more customers. Yes. And I want to engage and I want to find out how this sort of loops back into product and yep. how we do sales. So very, very much resonate with that. So as you look back, um, I think for people who want to be entrepreneurs, do you have any guidance for what they should do? Should they read books? Should they watch YouTube videos? Should they just do mm -hmm. it? So I think I would say two things. One is just do it. Um, and the second thing is, I think the thing that was lacking um, for me and the thing that prevented me from thinking, okay, I'm graduating and I'm going to start a company, right? One was what money, there is nothing I can do about this. But the other one was self-confidence. I feel like it, I remember like a few years before I started France, I had some friends who were telling me, I want to start a company. And I was like, I wish I could say, I want to start a company, but then I just don't feel the self-confidence to do so. Um, and so the best thing you can do is meet people that believe in you and either like, so the person that believed the most in me ended up being the person I married. So you can either marry someone that's really believed in you or like be friends or have mentors. Like it doesn't matter, but self-confidence is not something that, you know, you decide like, oh, okay, well, I'm self-confident this morning. It's like someone will help you show what's amazing about you and really make you believe in yourself. And I would say, do it and meet with these people and surround yourself with these people that will, that will make you believe in yourself. I think it's even more true with women. Like one thing I've, like I hate putting people in boxes and doing like men and women are different, but I do believe that I've met so many women who are super talented, but just don't have as much self-confidence as men do. And it's a bummer if that prevent them from jumping and starting a company. Do you think that's changing for the better or? I think that's changing because you have more and more women uh, running companies and talking about what it's like uh, building a company. And so that inspires more people. Like you see them and you think, well, she can do it. Like probably I can do it. So in that regard, that's changing. I think whether like, the self-confidence level is changing, I don't think so. So you moved from Paris to San Francisco. Um, what was it like to make that move? Yeah, it was a um, big move because I had never traveled outside Europe. I didn't know at all when I started France that I would move to San Francisco. And the very, like, what happened was I was dating a person who is my husband today, who was starting a company as well, who was way more tech savvy than I was. and so. It was like, ah, I'm starting a company. I'm going to apply to this thing called YC. And I was like, okay, cool. Me too. I'm going to apply to this thing. And that way, if we both are accepted, we're both going to be in San Francisco. It's going to be amazing. And so we both applied. We both got accepted. And so then spent three months here. And I just loved the energy. Like the reason why we moved is not because like, like investments is easier here and like you, know, you have more customers and like whatever. Like the truth is building a company is such a hard journey. And so if you're happy as a human being, that will lead to better outcomes. And I just felt happier. Like the weather was nice. People were very constructive and enthusiastic. I felt like we always were like one relationship away from, you know, the person that could help us solve our next problem. And so started in Paris, three months in uh, Silicon Valley, and then decided to stay, and that was nine years ago. To your point uh, previously, it is like an area where you can surround yourself with people who would believe in you. 
yes. sort of like willing to hear your crazy ideas and support you in that journey. I remember that Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, is one of the first person that I met because at the time Stripe was doing this email transparency thing. And so we were building a tool that allowed for more email transparency. So we met and he said to me, like, I think you're working on something great and I think you're great. And that was like pre-launch. And honestly, for me, I was like, okay, then I can do it. And so just that had such a big impact. And so over the years, I would tell him like, thank you. And it was like, I did nothing. Like it literally never helped. And I was like, just saying this and believing in me. And I think you see these people that approach new ideas with way less skepticism, which is so helpful. Because the truth is in France, people are like, okay, cool. You're building this email company. Like you're a team of two. Like you're hosting our emails, like no way we're going to use your product. And here, I think people got more excited about, you know, the product and that allowed us to have our first customers and our first employees, our first investors and things went faster. How did you get your first customer? Uh, what was that process like? Yeah, so for us, um, to be very tactical, we had a product mm -hmm. and we built a landing page and we showed the product and highlighted the problem and people could sign up for the beta. And the way we acquired our, honestly, the first probably like 300 customers was through content. So I was writing. Mm. I was writing things like uh, the future of email or whatever, uh, something about um, communication because at the time Slack was really taking off. And so I was thinking about synchronous versus asynchronous communication. and. Um, so content, and then we went into YC, I was writing about my journey in YC. And like, content was the way we drove people to this landing page. And then we just granted them access to the product very early on. And honestly, like, out of the first, I think, at a point I remember seeing that 3,000 companies had signed up to our beta and pretty three companies ended up using the product. So like, such a bad ratio. But it is because very early on, we led them in the product. Like, it was literally an email product where you couldn't add attachments. So it's like, you know, quite ballsy to have people use this, but like they were able to share feedback like very quickly that allowed us to iterate very quickly, that allowed us to make sure we were building something people wanted. And so content was the main way. And then we had to diversify away from just content, but it's been the best, like it's been the number one channel for acquisition in the early days. So people would use our product. It was free uh, for, sometime and then I remember my co-founder implemented Stripe and even without telling the people that were using it that like the billing system was implemented and you could still go in the settings and pay and someone paid and so it was like oh great I mean that's how we got our first customer and I reached out and they were just like yeah we were scared of not being able to use the product anymore so we paid. Amazing. In the, during that time, like, how did you think about um, sort of selling front to consumers versus businesses? Because there's probably all, almost like a consumer to business sort of transformation. Like someone tries it on their own and then realizes this is actually a great shared team. Inbox. Yeah. The truth is we're a team product. Yeah. And so you really get value when more than one person is using the product. Yeah. So I feel like, if anything, that has always been the greatest challenge up front, mm -hmm. is like, I wish, you know, someone could use the product and see a ton of value, but it's like literally a multiplayer thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we've always been focused on 
team, like acquisition of teams. All of this is happening, but you reach a point in your career where you needed to take a break from work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and then how did you overcome? Yes. This? So 2017, I think. Um, so my co-founder and I, we moved to San Francisco. The entire team moved to San Francisco. And one day my co-founder tells me he wants to talk to me. I go on a walk and he tells me he has cancer. And so that started a really hard period in, in my life because I had to pretend in front of the company that everything was going to be okay. I had to pretend in front of him who was going through you know chemo after chemo after chemo, like, don't worry, everything is fine. I think in this process, I just forgot to take care of myself. And it was like, this was really hard and now he's cancer free, so everything ended really well. But it was really hard, but it was also following three years of really intense work. And one day I woke up and I just couldn't go to work. And I had never experienced any mental health disorder in my life, but what I felt was so much anxiety and people were asking me like, what are you anxious about? I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. It's just like the way I feel is so anxious. I just can't do anything. Life is insanely painful. Um, and I had to stop working because I like I just couldn't. And if you had told me like just even like two months ago, you know, like two months before that happened, like you will not be able to go to work. I was like, I don't even understand how that can happen. So I suffered from anxiety and um, I had to do so much to overcome it. And it, there, it's not like there is one thing that worked. It was a combination of like hypnosis, therapy, taking time off, exercising, eating better, meditating, having a healthier relationship with work, where that's the moment I decided to not have work apps on my phone, for example. And to this day, I've never reinstalled any work app on my phone. And so I made a ton of changes and just, you know, over time things got better. Um, it took me like probably a year and a half for me to think, I'm glad this happened. Like for a year and a half, I was like, this was like the hardest thing. I would never want to experience it again. But then in retrospect, one, I gained a level of empathy. Um, that's so useful because a lot of people suffer from mental health. I, I think like even more so when we have these crazy jobs. Um, and two, I made a lot of changes in my life that I didn't undo. undo. So I'm still meditating every day. I'm still doing hypnosis when I need it. And that's been incredibly helpful. And I think today, I am I know today I'm much, much happier than I was before all this happened. And it's kind of sad that my co-founder had to go through like this insanely painful thing. Um, but if it what it takes, then that's what it takes. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. But also, uh, it sounds like amazing that the company made through two founders dealing with uh, you know, such a tough moment. So let's talk about uh, engagement. You've talked a lot about sort of like, you know, I guess you often speak about customers and employees in the same sentence, yep. um, especially when it comes to engagement. Um, I guess for you, how are these two interconnected in your mind? I think people are engaged at work because they know why they're working on what they're working on. And the why of anything you do is like who you serve. And so for a software company, your customers. And 
I've always felt like you could, you know, have the best perks and salaries and like office and whatever. Like if people don't really care about who they're building it for, then their engagement will fade like pretty quickly. So I've always been very deliberate about making sure that every employee at front knew who our customers were. And so I can talk more about all the things we've implemented to make it happen. But what I care about is people can put faces on the people that are using the product. People understand the things they love about the product. They also understand the things that our customers don't like about the product. So just coming from you know, one of my beliefs, which is like people are engaged because they know why. People are engaged because they feel part of the journey. And putting your customers front and center and making these customers feel part of the journey are two things that will have a very high impact on your uh, employee engagement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like how do you empower uh, maybe like non-customer facing teams to uh, you know, build a connection with your customers? There are many ways you can do it. Um, there is not like one thing, obviously. But the first thing is when people join, they have to answer a few support inquiries. Like you kill two birds in one stone because they have to use the product to do so. So they get a better understanding of how our product works, but also they talk to the customers. Um, any so. The way we do all hands is we have weekly all hands. I do quarterly all hands, where, which used to be monthly when we were smaller. In every of these all hands, I would have videos of customers like and pick a theme and then build um, a movie out of it. And so like people see customers like every month, every quarter. In weekly all hands, I, like we have ways to showcase workflows that customers have built. We had our company offsite a few months ago, and a few customers came, and they were able to meet with the team. We had um, a great Q and A, and so I. And then something that's pretty obvious, but we all use Front, and Front allows to have a ton of transparency around what people are saying. So it's in the process, the tool, the retools that you implement, but the, we're always looking for like new ideas, because also what worked when we were a company of 10 people is very different from 300. And so we just need to make sure that we, we adapt. I think one of the challenges I've faced, um, you know, at Notion is that it's easier to do it for the like the 10th employee. Yes. But as you scale, like, like let's say getting to the 300th employee, you know, some of these, I guess just like a sort of like yeah. scaling the company, some of these things get lost. And I'm curious yes. if you found good hacks to like keep that connection strong? Yeah, so this is why, for example, all hands or company retreats are so great because you're not like allowing for one-on-one, -on -one, like one-on-one -on -one time we used to do this where like literally every person would go visit a customer. Amazing, but that doesn't scale. Yeah. And, but for example, like if I ask today, like if I ask Frontiers, like, do you remember Jordan from company X? Like they actually do because like mm -hmm. I have, highlighted this person in a company all hands. And then the next one, I talked about Jordan again. And so I do believe that uh, you can have this one-to-many uh, relationship. I want to come back to the customer bit, but you talk a little bit about all hands, right? Yes. Uh, and you famously published a piece on how to run an all hands. Um, can you talk about 
what's important to cover it in all hands and like how it's evolved for you as the company scaled? Yeah, so there is no good answer. Like I can't tell you like this is what you, maybe to um, step back and tell you how I think about them. Like, yeah. uh, and I've shared this a little bit, but I am convinced that people people's engagement will increase when they feel part of the journey. And I'm a huge believer in transparency. And every like, the, I think one of the key things with transparency is making sure that you don't have to decide whether you share this or that and like whether you're transparent because the problem is if you need to decide then when something is not going as well you're like ah oh, should i should i not and then defeats the purpose so instead like you implement processes that force you to share whatever so for us for example our calendars are public we publish our board decks and all hands we share how we're tracking against like our goals and whatever so all these processes are in place which means that even if there is a board deck that's just not as good or like revenue is not pacing as well or we're not tracking against our OKRs, I have to talk about it. And so I very much see All Hands as a way to push information to employees so that they feel part of the journey, understand how we're pacing and understand how what they're working on correlates with the goals of the company. There is no like, I mean, I could literally talk about uh, you know, how we've done it when we were 10 and how we do it now. And all I would say is one thing I found very true is it's super important that the people who run certain parts of all hands do it with a high level of energy. Like you don't want to do it because you have to do it. You want to find people that will be passionate about sharing like whatever they were, they're going to share like a customer story or like the person that will talk about how we're tracking about, uh, against our goals. Like really cares about like presenting this. Like I feel like nothing replaced the level of engagement that some people can have because they enjoy the work that they're doing. And then we just like the way we do them today is we just have a rotation. So we do them weekly and quarterly. Like quarterly is a like bigger high level. Like I do all of it. I like I spend a lot of time working on it. And then weekly it's just a rotation. So like one week out of four, it's like revenue will do a deep dive on something like marketing, EPD, and GNA. And we rotate every other week. We add on top of that uh, Mathilde's musing. So I talk about something that I care about. And then on top of that, every month we have Frontier of the Month. And then on top of that, like we have Stumble of the Month with, where, like, you know, if you've screwed up on something, you can say, I screwed up. This is what I learned. That encourage a culture where people you know, can do mistakes and low ego is one of our values. So I care a lot about this ritual. So just like a rotation and then some rituals that you add to it. And once every three months, you step back and really put things in perspective of your bigger vision. Mathilde's musing has a nice ring to it. Um, is there a feeling you're trying to get to with all hands? Like, is it like, you're trying to get people informed, inspired, entertained, like, you know, what's the, what's the feeling that you try to go with? It's a great question. I, like, so I, I always try to be very deliberate about the message I want to lend or the feeling I want them to feel, but this is different per quarter or yeah. like, so first I'm not as deliberate on a weekly basis. Like I think the weekly basis, the goal is engagement mm -hmm. and like people are engaged because they're, listening to interesting content delivered by some people with high energy and they understand the why behind what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's, some people are so funny and some people are really not funny. 
And that's okay. Like you can still have engaging audience. So I wouldn't say I'm optimizing for you know entertainment. Like I'm just optimizing for information being delivered in a way that's interesting. And on a quarterly basis, that's very different. So we call them last quarter at front. And here I'm very deliberate about how I want them to feel. So sometimes I can think, okay, we're doing really good work. We have good results. We can't be complacent. And so that's the message I want to land. Mm -hmm. Some other times it's going to be, okay, we didn't do well, but like, let's not move into you know, despair. Like things are okay. Put things in perspective of like whatever. And so just being deliberate about the feeling you want people to have, I think will help you craft a much better story. Very helpful. Um, taking the other side, you've also said, you know, one-on-ones are amongst the most valuable meetings uh, people can have. Yeah. Um, why is that? So interestingly, I was um, meeting with an executive a few, like two weeks ago, like amazing executive who's done so well, like loved by the people that they've worked with. And I was telling them about how I do all hands. And they were like, oh, it's so interesting. Like I could see myself do this. And I was like, you know what? Like, I don't think I can teach you much because you've done so much more than I have. I have most things to learn from you. But there is one thing that I think we do really well. It's one-on-one. It's actually the, the only thing I force people to do. Like if you're joining Front and you're a manager and you're telling me like, no, I, sorry, I'm, I have the other way. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, like you're gonna do it that way. That's the only thing. You can do ev everything mm -hmm. else the way you want. And so the way we do them is um, we have weekly one-on-ones or bi-weekly, doesn't matter, and then monthly check-ins, and we call them happiness one-on-ones. And, um, and for monthly, like we send questions ahead of time. We ask people to send their like, answers in the doc like 24 hours ahead, and they are not aimed at talking about the work they're currently doing. We can also do this, but every month I'm going to ask you, like in the past month, what have you been most happy about? What have you been least happy about? What can I do to make your professional life better? If you were me, what would you do differently? And any questions for me? Like I always ask these questions. Then I can ask more, we can talk about work. But what I found is if you use your like typical one-on-ones to ask how you're doing, like I'm not gonna share like my mm -hmm. feelings like every week with you. Um, so like, but then if you use the focal process, which happens like every six months, you know, you're not catching the I don't know, resentment that people have built towards like a certain team or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I've just felt like uh, either monthly or six weeks cadence where all you talk about is just how people feel has been incredibly helpful. And in my entire time at France, I've never been surprised by anyone telling me like, I'm quitting like that. Like I never have this fear. I know exactly where people stand and that's just a good feeling. And I think I build trust with them. Um, it's also like allows for so much feedback and, um, you can be, you know, very direct, but they know you care. So it's coming from a place of care. Did this come very naturally to you? Did you learn it from somewhere? Like, how did it? How did you feel? Like, you feel like you have a very sort of refined point of view that you've built. Yeah, I think it's so. If I remember correctly, I read many years ago, like seven years ago, the hard things about hard things, mm -hmm. and I think in this book, there is probably a chapter on one-on-ones where this format is explained. I didn't invent it. I like the monthly check-in idea because I think it is a good way of just, you know, sort of moving away, like a structure to move away from day to day yes. or sort of week to week and just, you know, talk about. And those questions seem really straightforward that you can ask and get honest responses. Yeah. 
I would really encourage you to do that. I might, I might steal that. How do you think about um, sort of balancing this, uh, you know, sort of like productivity as well as sort of like having an impact uh, in terms of the company's goals and, you know, continue to have a good culture? How do I think about balancing high productivity and high engagement? Yeah. Like the best way to increase people's productivity is to increase their engagement. And mm -hmm. so like I think about engagement as the biggest lever I have. Um, and it's been challenged, right? Like the past few years, we've had to evolve so much on how to create that level of engagement because when you were in an office and we were in an office culture, like I felt like building this engagement, building these relationships, like that was pretty easy. And then everything shifted. And so we had to deeply think, how do you make this happen? At the same time, people said they were more productive. So then I was like, okay, well, everything I've always thought where like people are engaged, therefore they're proactive, maybe I'm wrong. And I don't think I was wrong. Like what I'm noticing now is, yes, you're technically more productive when you're at home, but your level of engagement, I think drops if you don't build these relationships. Mm -hmm. And so even if you've optimized for the highest number of hours you've worked, like you've not necessarily optimized for the greatest output like midterm. And that doesn't apply to every human being, mm -hmm. like some people, but at least that applies to us, like a company that was built with an in-office culture first. One of the other things that I'm curious about um, is like, is there a ways you think about tying sort of what employees are working on to the impact that they're making the company? Uh, it's another one of those like, easy things to do when you're like smaller yes. and gets harder when you're bigger. Yeah, I mean, so OKRs are supposed to do this, but then if you implement them and it's a disaster. But I do believe that there is something there, yeah. which is one thing I've changed about how I communicate with the company is I start every single all hands with like reminding people what our top three goals are for the year, for the half, and then how we're going to do against them. And so like, if you ask any frontier right now, like what are the three things working on, they, they would know. And then you make sure that every team thinks about their goals in these same ways. I mean, they're slightly different, obviously. And these goals are highly cross-functional. Yeah. They're not like hire X people and also reach that level of revenue and increase usage by whatever, like, then it's like, okay, well, every single quarter I could have these goals and it's not gonna help me understand why I'm working on what I'm working on. So I don't know if OKRs is the solution, but at least have like three themes every year, every half that are roughly the same themes as like what ICES will end up working on has been very successful for us. And one advice that I had received was, if you feel like you're repeating something too much, like it's probably that you're saying it like in the right amount. And before I wasn't repeating things because I was like uh, obsessing over what I want to say. Like I want to say things that are interesting. And so, but now I've changed this. Like the more I repeat, then the better. And yeah, it's not super interesting because you've heard it, but it, it makes sense why you're working on what you're working on. It seems like you have a little bit of like a love-hate relationship with OKRs. Can you unpack that? I have a love-hate relationship with OKRs because uh, the, um, there are many reasons. One of them, and I think the biggest one is, I end up in meetings where we're tracking 
we're looking at how we're tracking against our goals. And we lose the essence or the insights mm. that come with it. And so like the truth is we're still early in our journey. And so learning is so incredibly important. And if I'm only tracking like how I'm pacing towards our MQL like goal, revenue goal, DAU goal, and whatever goal I might have, like product usage. I'm like, okay, like we're trying to expand in the new market. Like, is it resonating? Is it not? Like, there is no OKR you can implement that will ever tell you this. And OKR is to lead people to optimize for like the scores. And you want, like, I want the accountability, so we do them, but love-hate relationship comes from me having to constantly come back to the why and the insights and the learnings and not just the grading. Yeah, I very much resonate with that. I think I found many times that KR becomes the O and, and it sometimes you know hurts the company because people agree. get so focused on the number. Yeah. So you've been a you know a pioneer in sort of radical transparency among SaaS businesses. Um, can you share what it means to you, why it's so important? I think it's important because I experienced a company that was not transparent and I saw how detrimental it was to my engagement. So like I'm not saying like you have to be transparent, but usually you take like a work environment or a project, you apply transparency to it, and things are much better. And I've just been convinced that it would lead to more productivity, more trust, more engagement. Just everything is better with transparency. And I share with the team very often, like transparency doesn't mean sharing everything. There is good and bad transparency, and good transparency helps answer questions, and bad transparency help, like raises more questions. And so I'm not saying like just share everything. Like for example, our um, salaries like are not public, and I feel very good about this, and I, exp I can explain why. Um, but being deliberate about being like uh, being transparent and having this good level of transparency has just yielded to so much trust and everything goes faster. But if you just use it like 90% of the way, like it doesn't work. So there is an art where like, you need to be 100% transparent on the things that matter, which doesn't mean like sharing 100% of the things. And if you master that art, I just feel like it yields such great results. So I just wanna take back to the point you mentioned. So let's assume like, you know, you had a bad quarter uh, yes. Right. Uh, I think like a natural sort of uh, entrepreneur sort of feeling yeah. is that I need to like hide that thing, like talk about like things that are yeah. better coming up. Uh, but I, what I'm hearing from you is a little bit like you got to take that head on, share that with the company because that actually can drive more productivity. Yes. Uh, uh, which is worth. I think the audience will love to love, understand that a bit more. 100%. And I, like, the reason why I shared previously that I think it's super important to have frameworks that prevent you from thinking, like, should I be transparent or not, yeah. is you have to share the bad results. Where I'm coming from is people often think that engagement comes from like hyping people, like you know, giving them energy. And so, yeah, I mean, being in front of the company and saying, we missed. We, like really missed this quarter. Like this is way less energizing, maybe, than we've done so well. Like we set these very ambitious goals, we've hit them, so great. 
And yet, I think it is counterintuitive, but it is way more encouraging and like will create way more energy for people to know that you're not trying to hide anything. I always feel like people can tell. Like people who, you know, hide, like either they will talk about another metric that went well and it's like, okay, but we're not talking about the things that we used to talk, like, you know, just two months ago. Like people can tell, they will lose trust and they will also lose like why they're working on the thing they're working on. Like if we missed our revenue numbers, it's because something is not working. If something is not working, we need to work on this. So if people connect the dots, like I'm working on this because that didn't yield the results expected, then there is just more meaning. Uh, so I feel so strongly that you shouldn't listen to you know, your fears in these situations and just implement whatever process you can to prevent you from even thinking about it. People always know when we have a bad quarter. What I'm also hearing is like, it's a little bit like sharing the results up front that, okay, we missed this quarter, but also showing them what sort of drove that and so that people can actually see the drivers and actually yes. rally together to actually work on it together. Yes, and what I tell people is whenever you are sharing that you're missing or not pacing, all I care about is you tell me that way, like either we've missed or we will miss. You tell me the plan, and you make sure that I have confidence in the plan. And I think it's the same for the company. Like, don't talk about something else. Don't talk about another metric that's going well. Like, tell me, we're not pacing. This is why. This is the plan. Do you feel confident in the plan? And if people feel confident in the plan, that's okay. Like, we've missed quarters at front, and it's totally fine. We've recovered, we've re-accelerated, like, that happens. You can take any public company, you look at their S1, and many of them had quarters that didn't go as well. Some also had like years of not growing as much as they wanted to. So like, I think the failure mode is you don't talk about it and you talk about something else. And then you don't have the entire company working on something very hard, which is like re-acceleration is hard, so. Can you talk a little bit about sort of maybe like how do you think about hiring in general? Like what's your framework for sort of recruiting people and leaders? The earliest hires, two pieces of advice I had received from Patrick Collison, who I've talked a lot about today. But one is think about whether you would want this person that you're about to hire 10 times. And if the answer is no, don't hire this person, the reason for it was this person will hire people and be part of the hiring process and they will hire people like them. It's very natural to hire people like yourself. The second piece of advice he had for me was in the very like first 10 employees, think about each hire as someone who could be your co-founder. Like your, ba your bar should just be so high. Um, so I think that was really helpful. Another thing that was helpful that I learned by making so, so many mistakes was don't hire people to solve problems you haven't solved yourself. And it's nuanced because of course you want mm -hmm. to hire people better than you and more experienced than you. But the moment we you know, hired engineers was because we knew the product we wanted to build and, you know, we knew we had something that they could work on that would be valuable. The moment we hired our first sales rep was we had sold enough new customers that we knew it was repeatable and someone could work on it. Like marketing is a very hard one where 
you don't know how to acquire users and you just like hire someone and go figure it out. What I found is instead, like find a few channels that work, like it can be content, mm -hmm. it can be partner marketing, it can be anything, hire for this, have this person do this and find other channels over time. But one mistake I've done is like, okay, I don't know if outbound works at, well, at all, like let's hire someone to figure it out. Like I have no idea how to generate more leads, like go figure it out. Like that hasn't been very successful for me. All right, maybe the closing questions. We ask all our all our leaders two questions. So uh, I think the first one uh, is describe a day in your life. Um, how do you start your day? Uh, you, you, do you have any rituals, customs that you do every day? I wake up when my kids wake up because they always wake up early. And then what I do is um, I take whoever woke up, go upstairs and meditate with them. Because I'm like, even if they don't care and are playing or whatever, like at least they see me for 10 minutes, be in the moment, breathe, like not be distracted. Another thing I do is I uh, make sure that I spend two hours with them every night. And so, you know, I've told you, like I used to not work at night after like having been so anxious. And we just need to be flexible in life. And now I'm working at night because now what I do is I work, then I pick them up, spend two, two and a half hours with them, and then uh, and then I work again. Um, that's, I mean, of course, every day is different, but I think I'm a very disciplined person. So I arrive at work like pretty much at the same time, leave at the same time, like pick them up, spend time with them. All right, final question. If you were to write a book about what's gotten to you, you to this point in your career, what would you title it? I don't know what the exact title would be, but it would be about transparency because one of the things that we've talked about how to apply transparency in a work environment, but it's also very much the way I am. Um, and I feel like I've been able to be where I am today because a lot of people have helped me get there. I've either been inspired, helped, learned from them. I guess, you know, and the reason why people have been willing to help me has been because I've always been very honest. Like I'm not here to prove anything to anyone. And I think that's also because I have this level of self-confidence that allow me to be insanely transparent and vulnerable. And this is why, you know, I care so much about people working on their self-confidence. I think we've created something very unique with Front and that was through like a very transparent journey. Well, Matino, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you very much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. Post Block is brought to you by Notion for Startups. We at Notion care deeply about startups and founders, and we hope these stories inspire you to keep building. To learn more about how we are supporting startups, please visit notion.com startups.